You are listening to Ithaca Now, WICB's weekly news program focused on stories in the Ithaca community. I'm your host, Leah McDermott, and thank you for joining us. On tonight's show, we're going to hear from our WICB news correspondent, Carolyn Grace, as she learns more about harmful algae blooms or HABs in the second part of a two-part series, learning more about the environment in the Ithaca area. And WICB News Director Beck Legato and news correspondent Joshua Pentelmo spoke with Annette Levine, who this past week led a presentation about the impact of second-generation Holocaust survivors. But first, we have Anushari Sukumaran and Newt Amita with Community Beat, and George Christopher with this week's Politics Beat. The Tompkins County Legislator is inviting the community to participate in a forum on the 2023 recommended county budget. The forum will begin at 7 p.m. on Tuesday, September 27th, and will include a brief overview on the recommended budget and an opportunity for Tompkins County residents to ask questions of legislators and provide input. The forum will be held on Zoom and simulcast to YouTube where it will be archived. The New York State Police are in Ithaca looking for a man accused of stealing a laptop from an office within Best Buy, which is located in the shops at Ithaca off Catherwood Road in the village of Lansing. The incident occurred on September 18th, around 1 in the afternoon. It was said that the man hid the laptop under his clothing and left in a black SUV. Tompkins Consolidated Area Transits, or TCAT, Board of Directors approved a revised version of the transportation agreement at the September 22nd meeting. The contract binds Cornell, the City of Ithaca, and Tompkins County as the bus service's financial underwriters. The agreement was set to expire October 9th. Delaying the approval of the transportation agreement would have left TCAT partially unfunded. The Tompkins County Legislator passed the updated version of the agreement at its September 20th meeting, and Common Council will now need to reapprove the agreement at its October 5th meeting. All are welcome to the Science Center as it has opened a new featured exhibition called Treehouses. The exhibition will be open from September 24th till January 2023. The Treehouses exhibition involves a numerous amount of ways to explore the important roles that trees play in providing homes for all creatures and establishing all of the senses. This exhibition engages people of all ages to learn about indoor nature explorations and the ecology of sustainable harvesting of important natural resources. United Way of Tompkins County, or UWTC, announced its 2022-2023 campaign goal of $1.8 million at a kickoff event on September 23rd. UWTC is a nonprofit helping people meet their immediate, basic needs by focusing on education, financial stability, and health. UWTC is hosting several events this coming fall, including the United for Con- Kindness series and a collaboration with Tompkins County Bullying Prevention. The event will be held on October 7th from 4 to 7 p.m. at United Way on 313 North Aurora Street. For all the cycling lovers out there in Ithaca, it will soon be easier to safely ride through the city. Along with the amenities of President Joe Biden's $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law, which is billions in funding for the Transportation Alternatives Program, this can support projects for small-scale transportation. Around 2.2 
million dollars have been devoted towards connecting the Black Diamond Trail and the Gateway Trail, which are two major biking paths in Ithaca. For Newt Andia, I'm Anushree Sukumaran. This is your weekly politics beat. I'm George Christopher. TCAT has come to an agreement with its three underwriters, the City of Ithaca, Tompkins County, and Cornell University, on a new transportation agreement. According to the Ithaca Voice, the agreement was approved by the TCAT Board of Directors on Thursday. The agreement was already approved by the county legislature on Tuesday and will be taken up by the Common Council at its October 5th meeting. TCAT's current agreement is set to expire on October 9th. A major contention in negotiations was part of past transportation agreements that required the three underwriters to pay for any budget shortfalls TCAT faces. Cornell sought to amend this in the new agreement to allow the three underwriters to choose whether or not to fill the deficit. The new agreement will allow the underwriters to choose if TCAT makes a major change to its business model or expenses. Governor Kathy Hochul is sending 100 New York State troopers to Puerto Rico to assist with relief efforts in response to Hurricane Fiona. Puerto Rico has seen severe power outages. According to The Guardian, over 900,000 homes and businesses are without power on the island. Just five years ago, Puerto Rico was hit with Hurricane Maria, which also devastated the island. New York Attorney General Letitia James has filed a lawsuit against former President Donald Trump and three of his adult children. According to the New York Times, Trump stands accused of overvaluing his assets by billions of dollars to deceive lenders and insurers. The suit also names Donald Trump Jr., Eric Trump, and Ivanka Trump, who have held senior positions in the Trump Organization. James also named multiple other senior officials and businesses in Trump's business empire. Reporting for Ithaca Now, I'm George Christopher. You are listening to Ithaca Now. I'm your host, Leah McDermott. Harmful allergy blooms or HIBs started to appear roughly six years ago in the Cayuga Lake, causing state agencies and community interest groups to take notice to them. WICB News correspondent Carolyn Grace in the second part of a two-part series trying to learn more about how HABs are affecting the Ithaca community. Last week, in part one of our story about harmful algal blooms on Cayuga Lake, we heard from Program Manager Grace Haynes of the Community Science Institute, Bill Foster, Executive Director of Discover Cayuga Lake, and HABs Monitoring Program Volunteer Sally Sumner. The segment looked at what harmful algal blooms, or HABs, are, how the monitoring program started, and why educating people about HABs is crucial to keeping people safe. This week, we'll hear from more volunteers about why protecting the lake is important to them, and from Paul Gear of the Tompkins County Soil and Water Conservation District to learn more about their agricultural environment management program. If you didn't hear part one of the story last week, make sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, wicb.org news. HABs started to appear in Cayuga Lake around six or seven years ago, and in 2018, the Community Science Institute started a monitoring program in partnership with Discover Cayuga Lake and the Cayuga Lake Watershed Network. Many factors are thought to impact the likelihood of HABs appearing, especially higher water temperatures, extreme weather, and increased nutrient and sediment runoff. 
Stephanie Redmond is a volunteer for the HABS monitoring program in addition to her position as the program manager for a nonprofit called Cayuga Lake Environmental Action Now and as town supervisor for the town of Enfield. Redmond described how helping improve agricultural practices is one of the most immediate things that can be addressed to help decrease the likelihood of HABs appearing. This is sort of low-hanging fruit in a sense. Like, it's something that we actually can do something about. You know, we can't really change climate change, you know, at the level that we could change this agricultural runoff um, and, and start to, you know, do mitigating action with that. We can't change temperature increase. We can't change the rainfall as easily. I mean, that's like a, more of a global effort. But we can locally change, you know, do work with our our agricultural runoff. And, and, you know, we can implement regulations about, you know, riparian buffers and setbacks from ditches and streams and do bioswales and retention ponds. Paul Gear from the Tompkins County Soil and Water Conservation District works with about 150 farmers and said he is meeting more every day to look to make improvements to their farms. Their work helps farmers install best management practices, or BMPs, which are conservation practices which help reduce or prevent pollution. I work with farmers and landowners taking environmental kind of uh, inventories, if you will, looking at potential areas for improvement and the areas of concerns, and working with plans and trying to find funding to, to make corrections or improvements. And that's primarily what I do. And I'm in charge of the Agricultural Environmental Management Program, AEM. According to the New York State Department of Agriculture and Markets, quote, AEM is a voluntary incentive-based program available to all farmers. AEM supports common sense, cost-effective, and science-based decisions to meet farm goals while protecting and conserving New York's natural resources. Identifying and limiting a farm's point source nutrient inputs as well as non-point source runoff are two ways to address runoff on a farmland. Some examples of BMPs that can be installed are planting riparian forest buffers, implementing cover cropping or crop rotation, installing a covered barnyard, or a nutrient storage system. Here explained that nutrient management plans can help farmers have the most cost-effective businesses while lessening their environmental impact. There's many practices that you can do on a farm, and it certainly depends on the type of farm and the type of nutrient. I think the most important message I'd like to put out there is that all farms are looking to manage their nutrient. The, the economics of farming are so tight right now. It's, it's very tough. The, the profit margins are so thin that the farms can't afford to put on any more nutrient than they absolutely have to. So what's really helping to drive the farms right now is what's called nutrient management programs. They, you might hear the term CNMP, a comprehensive nutrient management program or management plan. It's looking at maximizing what's the least amount of nutrient I can spread or use, apply to the crop to get the most return on that crop. Used to be back in the 70s, well, if 100 pounds of 100 pounds of nitrogen would be great, I'll put on 150 pounds just to make sure I have enough. Well, that that thinking is no longer relevant. It, it's, it's not practical, it's not affordable. We look at different practices, BMPs across farms for animal fertilizer applications and manure applications. You know, we're looking at when's the right time to spread, what's the right rate, what is the right amount and application, and uh, matching it to the right crop. According to the 2017 Census of Agriculture, there are 1,881 farms in Cayuga, Tompkins, and Seneca counties combined, which surround Cayuga Lake. 
the counties have over 435,000 acres of farmland. The census is taken every five years, and all three areas saw slight declines in the number of farms. With fewer farms and increasing number of BMPs installed to help decrease nutrient runoff, it seems that HABs should be decreasing as well. But Gear said that while he's not an expert on HABs, warming weather and increased rain events stemming from climate change are just two of many other factors contributing to them. During our summers, the water is getting warmer, so it's more conducive to, to bringing these HABs and, and making them bloom and manifest themselves. So yes, we are indeed reducing the amount of nutrient reaching our lakes and we're reducing the amount of soil eroding off our farms. But there are so many other forces out there that are, that are encouraging these, these harmful algae blooms to happen that we can't, we can't put all of our eggs in one basket, you know what I mean? Since 1901, annual average precipitation has increased 4% across the United States, with the Northeast, Midwest, and Great Plains regions seeing the largest increases, according to the National Climate Assessment. The frequency and intensity of rainfall events are increasing more than the average precipitation, and the Climate Assessment asserts that, quote, the largest observed increases have occurred and are projected to continue to occur in the Northeast and Midwest where additional increases exceeding 40% are projected for these regions by 2070 to 2099, relative to 1986 to 2015. That, that, that is the big issue right now, because we're seeing just these huge rainfall events. So certainly we're trying to improve soil health, so we can raise soil organic matter for every 1% organic matter added increased in the soil you can add an additional 19,000 gallons of water per acre storage so we're promoting that we're always looking to put in swales or grass diversions grass waterways water control structures it's all about surface water management when, when you just have a deluge and, and you have three four or five inches of rainfall in less than an hour then then mother nature kind of wins and you can have a lot of structures in, in place and a lot of practices in place, but in the end, you're still at the, at the mercy then of, of nature and all this water you're trying to control. Volunteer Redmond stressed how important funding is to help farmers improve their practices. Gear said the soil and water conservation districts work with farmers to cost share and use grant funding available so that farmers don't have to pay for the entire cost of installing a BMP. We need more funding for soil and water, more funding for the DEC. We need more funding for municipalities to implement these projects and more funding for farmers because, you know, we're all part of that problem. We can't just blame farmers because, you know, that's almost like 75% of the land use within Cuga Lake watershed. But it's, it's something we all utilize, whether we want to admit it or not. You know, we're, we're drinking milk, having butter and all sorts of, you know, products from these farms. And we can't just blame the farmers themselves because they're really serving all of us. So we need to come up with a, a cooperative model that, you know, that we can use to, to help them and incentivize them and, and fund these projects. Gear said he has seen improvements in smaller watersheds within the larger Cayuga Lake watershed and said he feels farmers are actively looking to improve their practices. He said they have seen tremendous success, but added there's always room for continued outreach and improvement. We've, we've got a lot of BMPs on the ground in those, in those, I'll call them micro watersheds contributing to Cayuga Lake. We're putting BMPs on all different kinds of farms across the landscape. So we're, we're looking at a lot of success and, and what we can influence and what we can contribute to a reduction 
of nutrient. Um, we're seeing a great increase of cover crop acreages in the Fall Creek and Salmon Creek watersheds. It's very exciting right now with agriculture. I see a change. I see a lot of younger generations coming in and taking over on, on farms where my generation is, is retiring. They're, they're turning it over to, to you know sons, to daughters, to, to younger folks who want to get in. And there's such a great passion out there right now. It is so exciting to work in agriculture right now because it is such a focus. So many people that I meet are, are talking about the things you're talking about. How can I manage this land for these increased rainfall events? And how can I hold nutrient? And, and what can I do for cover cropping or grazing? I mean, we're seeing just such a great interest and enthusiasm for this. All farms that we, that we work with, everyone is expressing, how can I become more efficient? How can I become a better steward of my farm? Because if a farm is not a good steward, it doesn't make them economically competitive. And all farms, of course, want to be economically competitive. They want to keep their land. They want the best healthy land that they can. They want the best healthy animals that they can. Um, yes, some of these BMPs that we look to install, they are costly. And that's, you know, we work with the farms and we try and match grants to help offset some of these expensive costs. Other, other BMPs like cover cropping or crop rotation, that's a little bit easier to apply across the farm, not as, not as, costly as a as something that's structural like a covered barnyard or a nutrient storage fertilizer storage type system there's there's least cost effective to certainly very costly while farmers are implementing bmps to reduce nutrient runoff habs are still impacting residents and tourists andy yale is a retired school teacher and has been a volunteer for the csi's monitoring program since 2018 for two years, he was a quadrant leader and coordinated monitoring for the southwest quadrant of the lake. Yale talked about how many people still don't know about what HABs are or how to report them. There's been a lot of publicity, and I think most residents along the lake are pretty aware. And like anything, there are a lot of people who don't know and people who do and people who come into the area and want to recreate on the lake, rent a house on the lake frequently don't have a clue. It's, it's really an issue. We need to find better ways, I think, to educate people who are moving into the area about algae blooms. So I, I think uh, people are working to try to figure out ways to do that, but I, I think there's more that needs to happen with that. People see an algae bloom and sometimes know right away, oh, I need to alert somebody and here's how I do it. I connect with uh, the Cayuga Lake Watershed Network or CSI and make a report or ask somebody to come and look. And other people um, don't know how to connect. So that's that's the way to connect. You can go to the Community Science Institute webpage and uh, there are resources there, both in terms of how to identify HABs and also how to go about reporting them. Another volunteer, Kenneth Reamer, said the same thing and explained that many people he talks to may only have a vague understanding of the issue, but don't recognize the danger. Last year, I went over to Aurora to have uh, dinner at one of the, at the local pub. And I got out of the boat, and there was a massive loom. And there was a young couple down on the beach where I was walking along to get to the restaurant. And they are in the water. They're throwing buoys out in the lake for their dog to retrieve and they had had didn't have the foggiest idea even and i stopped them and told them exactly what was going on and that's kind of the reaction i get people 
know to a minor degree what it's out there, but they don't grasp the fact that it is harmful. We are in a highly recreational area. People are coming here from all over the place. And bass fishermen are coming here for tournaments constantly. And they come, again, from far and wide. So public dissemination of, of uh, information is absolutely essential. We do have pamphlets down at uh, my local boat launch, very sorrowfully. They don't take very many. So, which which bothers me immensely, but I think public releases from DEC, CSI, and so forth, that's of a great help. You know, we don't want to put a huge red flag out there. We have algal booms and, you know, don't come on our lake. You know, we don't want that for darn sure, but we have to inform that they need to be careful. Redmond talks specifically about how the increase in HABs on the lake has impacted her family's ability to go on the water. I think it's had a significant impact. I have three children. My oldest is 20 and my youngest is 11. And I've actually noticed that my youngest child does not know how to swim as well as his older two siblings. I have always brought my children down to the lake to learn to swim, and I grew up learning to swim on the lake. During the summers, we we can't go down there pretty much, you know, July, August has been a huge impact in our ability to swim in, in the swim areas along shorelines. We do have pools around us, but, you know, I'm, I'm over sort of in the out, outskirts of, you know, Trumansburg Enfield area. We do not have a pool. So it's, you know, a good half an hour drive for us to get up to like the YMCA or something like that, where we can utilize the public pools. So it just really limits our access to water. So you have to be careful now in a way that I didn't have to when I was growing up. And even my when my 20-year-old was a child, we did not have that concern with, with water quality. Reamer stressed that while educating people about the dangers of HABs and keeping people safe is extremely important, the lake should still be a place where people can come and recreate. I, I think the one thing that bothers me is we don't want to have a flag out there that says we have a resource you can't use but i also see that we need a we have to make people knowledgeable and they have to abide by the knowledge that is is given to them and this goes on over into invasive species of, uh, of uh, weeds and so forth people have to be more responsible that's all there is to it they, they can't be arrogant they just have to say hey I'm part of this environment. I got to protect it just like my neighbor does and so forth. I think that's that's the big deal for me. Heal reflected on the past four years of the work from the monitoring program and said he is hopeful that the work they are doing is helping scientists learn more about HABs. I think our lake is a precious resource and it's really important that we act as stewards. So it's important in that way. It's also fun. It's it's good to feel like, yeah, I'm taking care of the place I live and I'm going to keep it uh, in as good shape as I can for folks who come after. So it's part of being a community. I really feel one of the things that the lake does is it gives you a perspective on where you live. You can kind of see the lake and imagine it on a map and where you are and gives you a sense of where you are in the world. So having that connection and feeling like you're part of a community doing this is really important. There are, I think, 70 or 80 people who are monitoring abs in our lake area. So it's, it's good to be part of a group like that. Through the work that we're doing, I think 
scientists are getting more of a sense of what HABs are and how to control them. And efforts are being made to control agricultural runoff. So I'm hopeful about that. Our area is working hard to do things to mitigate climate change, but that's going to be an ongoing problem for the, the far future, I'm afraid. So I see both hope and some challenges ahead for us all. For WICB News, I'm Caroline Grass. Professor Annette Levin, Levine this past week hosted a presentation on Ithaca College's campus titled Fragile Knowledge, which was sponsored by the Hillel Group on campus to educate more people on the emotional impact of being a second-generation Holocaust survivor. WICB news correspondent Joshua Pantelmo and Beck Legato spoke with Annette Levine, reflecting on her talk and how it impacted her as a speaker. Annette Levine, a professor in the Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures, gave a lecture at Ithaca College this past Tuesday about the impact of generational trauma in second-generation Holocaust survivors in Latin America. The presentation was created to consider ideas of representation while also showing her research where second-generation survivors gained access to information that would never have been found if not for her research. This is the second time that Levine has done this seminar this year, with her having done it for Cornell University this past February. The title for today's talk was inspired by something second generations survivor Aida Ender recently stated in an interview. Crecimos con la cicatriz de la herida de nuestros padres. We grew up with the scar of our parents' wound. This statement leaves me in contemplation of Aida's use of the metaphorical wound and the scar as physical manifestations of ambiguous loss. The scars both worn and felt by descendants of survivors always recalling a wound that they can perceive, yet one they may never fully know. The speech was dedicated to Suji Gage, a former professor who passed away. Levine began her talk by dedicating this speech to her and speaking on her and the foundation that was created in her honor. Some years back, after my students and I were invited to perform an original rendition of an Argentine play at the United Nations for International Human Rights Day, I was invited to help kick off the Martin Luther King Jr. Day celebration here at IC. Though my work intersected with the mission of the event, my identity as a white woman made me hesitant. When I spoke with Suji about my discomfort, she wisely advised, why don't you start by telling your audience who you are? I wasn't yet ready to do so. Instead, I invited colleagues and students to share the podium with me, and we devised an interactive and intersectional kickoff event that shed light on the despair and trials of migration, asylum, and citizenship in the United States. I wasn't yet ready to publicly talk about the call of silence that tied my own tongue and kept me from openly speaking about my identity as a genderqueer descendant of refugees and Holocaust survivors. Having lived the inheritance of Holocaust survivor among my own parents and grandmother, working directly on this topic did not seem possible for me until very recently. This presentation will be shown at other colleges in the Northeast to fundraise a sponsored residency in ethnocide, genocide, and Holocaust studies to be housed at Suji Gage's Levine began her talk by speaking on Mouse by Art Spielkman and how it has lent to her research, speaking on the relatability of the book to her research and how it helped her presentation. 
Changes when Spiegelman draws himself after his father dies. Book 2, Chapter 2, entitled Time Flies, opens with Artie at the drawing table when he's trying to continue writing and illustrating. And this is when I had a memorable, visceral experience. Though I had read this section of the graphic novel in years past, it, was, it struck me newly after my father's death. Upon recognizing that I was the sole heir of our family's story, that my identity as a descendant of Holocaust survivors was now something I would need to explain. We see Artie the illustrator. Rather than a mouse, we see a man wearing a mouse mask. Artie now has to intentionally focus in order to access a time and place that no longer belongs to him in the same way it did before his father had died. His own identity is shifted. He can be a mouse in relation to his memory of his father, and even then, he does not embody the mouse fully. He wears a mask as he works to inhabit and represent the past. Further, having no living siblings and both his parents having died, his mouse attributes that of inheriting his parents' wound, of being a second-generation survivor, having lived in the shadow of his brother Rikid, who was murdered during the Holocaust, these attributes are invisible to others unless Artie asserts his identity as a child of Holocaust survivors, unless Artie tells the story of his parents' survival in the aftermath. As a now assimilated white man in the U.S., it is an identity that is in the balance, one that already must choose to perform. When we pan out and take a look at the four panels atop this page, we see Hardy jumping between time frames. He lists a significant events in his life which seem rather trivial as he weighs them against the immensity of his father's survival in the camps. Vladek started working as a tin man in Auschwitz in the spring of 1944. I started working on this page at the very end of February 1987. In May 1987, Francois and I are expecting a baby. Between May 16, 1944 and May 24, 1944, over 100,000 Hungarian Jews were gassed in Auschwitz. On the lower half of the page, the weight of Artie's responsibility is evident. As time passes, the time flies are pestering Artie. His crumpled drafts appear as corpses underfoot. Despite the success of the publication of Mouse Book One, a critical and commercial success, success with at least 15 foreign editions, Artie returns to the haunting fact of his mother's death by suicide in 1968. She is yet another casualty of the Holocaust. In the pages that follow, we see Artie in crisis as he shrinks before the media and then meets with his therapist, also a survivor. Its visual representation is striking in its relative simplicity and its resonance. Um, we see Artie struggling to um, reconcile with himself upon listening to the recordings that he had taken of his father, his insistence upon asking his father to talk about Auschwitz, and his father obviously wanted to talk to him about other topics that seemed at least in Artie's mind, to be rather trivial at that When we look at this, um, this script here, we see Artie having a more minuscule and then growing back into his full size. Um, while this seems like a rather simple and simple rendition of this coming into full size, when we read it in the context of Artie's 
self-reflection and his own experience in front of the media and then trying to understand how to how to illustrate his father in the Tin Man shop in Auschwitz, we see suddenly that it is in being able to portray his father and being able to articulate the story of his father's survival that he himself becomes more whole. Levine speaks on how she identified with the mouse panel, saying that, When I look over these panels with you today, I now feel more identified with the Arden who is coming into his whole self, who is more fully himself than the Arden in crisis at the drawing table. Through a database from the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum, Levine was able to gain the names of relatives of not only the people that she spoke with, but was also able to learn more about her relatives that would have otherwise been extremely difficult to access. When I returned to the list and I studied the other names, I surprisingly came upon my, my grandmother's birth name, Tannenbaum. Something about seeing her surname and the number of Tannenbaums listed one after the another set me in motion. Sosha, Golda, Reisler, Simon, Hilda, Mosek, Haya, Schlama, Meile, Poya, and Dalva. Tannenbaums are very common. Um, I felt helpless. Um, I wanted to quickly adopt these Tannenbaums as my own, and I also had absolutely no idea as to whether or not we would be related. This lack of information was not for a lack of wanting to know. I was always instructed not to ask, and I respected that, as it was clearly vital to my grandmother's well-being. Levine spoke with a couple of different people, one of them being Mirta Kumfermink, who was... She was born in Buenos Aires in 1955, and is an internationally recognized artist whose work explores themes of memory, the limits of language, witnessing traumatic history, exile, and migration through a variety of mediums. She's received the highest artistic distinction in Argentina and regularly exhibits her work around the world. Her current active exhibit in the Buenos Aires Holocaust Museum is entitled Testimonio para el Testigo, Bearing Witness. Levine spoke on her interest of Mirta Kumfermink and how her experience and work as a sculptor inspired Levine's presentation. I had already known Mirta Kumfermink from a previous conference, and I, I've been, I've known about her, her work, her sculptures, since I began doing research on the bombing of the Amia in Argentina. So I knew about her work from 1998, and I had seen her present at conferences over the years. Um, it wasn't until I started getting really interested in this topic of Holocaust survivorship and migration to Latin America that she became a person of interest mm. for me. Uh, but since we had already had some contact, it was very easy to kind of open that door and begin speaking to each other. Levine described Mirta's experience with grief and learning about those who passed away during the Holocaust long after the event has occurred. Her father had already passed away, and upon naming her child Daniel, her mother suddenly said to him, You know, your father's first son had that same name, and Mirtha came to learn that her father had a previous wife, Sala, and that Sala and Daniel, who was only a baby at the time, uh, were both cast in Russia. 
Myrta processed this information and was able to turn it into art, creating an etching called Phantasma. This was created in 2000, so many years after. And yet it's a very fresh experience, something rather recent for her. Um, Myrta Kupanen has gifted a copy of this work uh, to the residency that we've created in Suji Sen. Um, so I, I went to the central database of victims' names in Yad Vashem, which is available online, and found a testimony that was submitted by uh, Mirtha's aunts, who survived and immigrated to Israel, about um, Salah and Daniel's murder. And I find it interesting that it's dated 1999. Um, so in a sense, they too were complicit in sort of hiding the truth of Mirtha's um, father's first family, kind of protecting, shielding um, that information until it was safe to allow it to be known. When Levine spoke about her experience speaking with her interviewees, she mentioned this feeling of being able to relate to the speakers. During Zoom interviews with Gabi, Diana, Aida, and Mirtha, I would find myself having goosebumps as they were telling of experiences and thoughts that were all too familiar. Um, Gadi's parents and Mirtha's father's stories were guiding me back to the very city my own family was from. I longed to trace their parents' whereabouts in Lodz, Poland, while also reckoning with my own lack of knowledge regarding my own family's whereabouts. Looking back on her experience, Levine spoke on how she didn't really expect the emotional journey that she went on in connecting with the people that she spoke to for her project. Very surprising. I didn't expect to be so emotionally moved the way I was while I was listening to them speak. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it became clear that I hadn't yet unpacked much of the own, my own family history as I was listening to them and I understood so well what they were talking about and I, I felt like I could almost anticipate what they were about to tell me mm -hmm. based upon my own family's experience, but I had never put words to it. So it was really um, almost uncanny, I guess. Levine, to close out her lecture, explained the importance that stories of generational trauma have in the modern day. Sometimes there are obstacles we don't even realize. You know, I wasn't really fully cognizant of how I was avoiding learning about my family's truth because I knew my parents themselves were self-shielding. Mm -hmm. I knew on a subconscious level that it wasn't safe for them for me to unearth all this information. Mm -hmm. And somehow there was a block that got released when my parents were no longer needing that shield. Um, you know, my father's passing and my mother having dementia suddenly freed, freed me up to look into these crevices that before were kind of forbidden zones. So I would say to anyone that doesn't feel those blocks, um, that there's a lot of information still to be learned. And now with the the databases are just so easily accessed that mm -hmm. um, I would be very encouraging of looking, looking further and more deeply. Um, just because someone's third generation doesn't mean that this doesn't impact them deeply.
Fragile Knowledge is a presentation that was created by Annette Levine to speak on the scars of second-generation Holocaust survivors and will be given to other colleges in the Northeast. For WICB News and for Joshua Pantano, I'm Beck Legato. That's all for tonight's edition of Ithaca Now. You can listen to all our stories on WICB.org. And if you'd like to listen to past shows, follow WICB on SoundCloud and subscribe to Ithaca Now to hear this show anywhere, anytime. Also, subscribe to the latest to hear our daily newscast every weekday. Just search WICB News Presents on your favorite podcast app. For more updates throughout the week, follow WICB News on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This show wouldn't happen without the support of our assistance from Manager of Television and Radio Operations, Jeremy Menard, WICB Station Manager Connor Hibbard, and Programming Director Harrison Kona. Thank you. Ithaca Now is produced by News Director Beck Legato, with assistance from News Managing Director Jordan Broking, News Production Director Imbani and Barrison, and our Web Coordinator Evan Clark. All of the music from our show's intro and outro come from Dr. Dundeef of Louisville, Kentucky. Have any feedback, stories, ideas? Just want to say hi? Feel free to reach out by emailing at news at wicb.org. We will be back with a full episode of Ithaca Now at 7 p.m. next Sunday.